Section 24 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Orchestral Literature and Orchestral Development Part 2. In the Romantic period, there developed, chiefly at the hands of Mendelssohn, a form peculiarly characteristic of the time, the so-called Concert Overture. This was based on the classic overture for opera or spoken drama, written in sonata form, usually with a slow introduction, but poetic, and to a limited extent descriptive, and intended purely for concert performance. The models were Beethoven's overtures, Coriolanus, Egmont, and the best of all, the Leonore No. 3, written to introduce a particular opera or drama, it is true, but summing up and in some degree following the course of the drama, and having all the earmarks of the later romantic overture. From a mere prelude, intended to establish the prevailing mood of the drama, the overture had long since become an independent artistic form. These overtures gained a great popularity in concert, and their possibilities for romantic suggestion were quickly seized upon by the romanticists. Weber's overture to Der Freischutz, though written for the opera, may be ranked as a concert overture. It is most frequently heard in that capacity, and along with it the equally fine Euranthe and Oberon. The first named was a real challenge to the Philistines, the slow introduction with its horn melody of surpassing loveliness, and the fast movement, introducing the music of the incantation scene, are thoroughly romantic. Weber's best-known concert overture, in the strict sense, the Jubel Overture, is of inferior quality. Schumann, likewise, wrote no overtures not intended for a special drama or a special occasion, but some of his works in this form rank among his best orchestral compositions. Chief among them is the Manfred, which depicts the morbid passions of the soul of Byron's hero, as fine a work in its kind as any of the period. The Genoveva overture is fresh and colourful in the style of Weber, and that for Schiller's Bride of Messina is scarcely inferior. Berlioz had to his credit a number of works in this form, mostly dating from his earliest years of creative activity. Best known are the Rob Roy, introducing the Scotch tune, Scots Wahé, and the Carnival Romaine, but the Lear and the Corsair, inspired by two of his favourite authors, Shakespeare and Byron, are also possessed of his familiar virtues. Another composer who in his day made a name in this form is William Sterndale Bennett, an Englishman who possessed the highest esteem of Mendelssohn and Schumann, and was a valuable part of the musical life of Leipzig in the thirties and later. The best part of his work, now forgotten save in England, is for the piano, but the Parisina and Wood Nymphs overtures were at one time ranked with those of Mendelssohn. Like all English composers of those times, he was inclined to the academic, but his work had much freshness and romantic charm, combined with an admirable sense of form. 
but it is Mendelssohn whose place in this field is unrivalled. His Midsummer Night's Dream overture, written when he was 17, has a place on modern concert programmes analogous to that of Schubert's unfinished symphony. This work is equally the delight of the musical purist and of the untechnical music lover. It is marked by all Mendelssohn's finest qualities. Not a measure of it is slipshod or lacking in distinction. Its scoring is deft in the extreme, its themes are fresh and charming, and upon it all is the polish in which Mendelssohn excelled. No note seems out of place, and none, one feels, could be otherwise than as it is. It is mildly descriptive, as descriptive as Mendelssohn ever was. The three groups of characters in Shakespeare's play are there, the fairies, the love-stricken mortals, and the rude mechanicals, each with its characteristic melody. The opening chords, high in the woodwind, set the fanciful tone of the whole. For deft adaptation of the means to the end, it has rarely been surpassed in all music. In his other overtures, Mendelssohn is even less descriptive, being content to catch the dominant mood of the subject and transmit it into tone in the sonata form. Fingal's Cave, the chief theme of which occurred to him and was noted down on the supposed scene of its subject in Scotland, is equally picturesque in its subject matter, but lacks the buoyant invention of its predecessor. The Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage is a masterpiece of restraint. The technical means are exceedingly simple, for in his effort to paint the reigning quiet of his theme, Mendelssohn dwells inordinately upon the pure tonic chord. Yet the work never lacks its composer's customary freshness or sense of perfect proportion. His fourth overture, to the story of the lovely Melusina, is only second to the Midsummer Night's Dream in popularity. In these works Mendelssohn is at his best. Only the Elijah and the Violin Concerto equally deserve long life and frequent repetition. For the overture's best show Mendelssohn, the Synthesist, in them he has caught absolutely the more refined spirit of romanticism, with its emphasis on tone colouring and its association of literary ideas, and has developed it in a classic mould as perfect as anything in music. Nowhere else do the dominating musical ideas of the 18th and 19th centuries come to such an amicable meeting ground. Yet this controlled romanticism, which Mendelssohn doubtless hoped would found a school, had little historical result. The frenzied spirits of the time needed some more vigorous stimulation, and those who had vitality sufficient to make history were not the ones to be guided by an academic gourmet. The Mendelssohn concert overtures are a pleasant bypath in music. They by no means strike a note to ring down the corridors of time. Controlled romanticism was not the message for Mendelssohn's age, for this age was essentially militant, smashing idols and blazing new paths, and nothing could feed its appetite save bitter fruit. This bitter fruit it had in full measure in Berlioz's romantic symphonies, as in Liszt's symphonic poems. Of the true romantic symphonies, the most remarkable is Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, one of the most astonishing productions in the whole history of music. It seems safe to say that in historical fruitfulness, this work ranks with three or four others of the greatest, Monteverdi's opera Orfeo in 1607, Wagner's Tristan, and what else?
the fantastique created program music. It made an art form of the dramatic symphony, including the not-yet-invented symphonic poem and all forms of free and storytelling symphonic works. At the same time, it gave artistic existence to the leitmotif, or representative theme, the most fruitful single musical invention of the 19th century. The fantastique seems to have no ancestry. There is nothing in previous musical literature to which more than the vaguest parallel can be drawn, and there is nothing in Berlioz's previous works to indicate that he had the power to take a new idea, two new ideas, out of the sky and work them out with such mature mastery. One might have expected a period of experimentation. One might at least expect the work to be the logical outcome of experiments by other men. But Berlioz had no true ancestor in this form. He had no more than chance forerunners. Nevertheless, program music, or at least descriptive music, in some form or other, is nearly as old as music itself. We have part songs dating from the 15th and 16th centuries, which imitate the cuckoo's call, or the songs of other birds. Jeanne Aquin, contemporary with Palestrina, wrote a piece descriptive of the Battle of Marignan, fought between the French and the Swiss in 1515. Even Bach joins the other programme composers with his caprice on the departure of his brother, in which the post-horn is imitated. Couperin gave picturesque titles to nearly all his compositions, and Rameau wrote a delightful piece for harpsichord, suggestively called The Hen. Many of Haydn's symphonies have titles which add materially to the poetry of their music. Beethoven admitted that he never composed without some definite image in his mind. His pastoral symphony is so well known that it need only be mentioned, though strict theorists may deny it a place with programme music, on the plea that, in the composer's own words, it is rather the recording of impressions than painting. Yet Beethoven wrote one piece of downright programme music in the strict sense, for his Battle of Vittoria frankly sets out to describe one of the battles of the Napoleonic Wars. It is, however, pure hack work, one of the few works of the master which might have been composed by a mediocre man. It is a sort of debased programme music, which was much in fashion at the time, easy and silly stuff which pretended to describe anything from a landscape up to the Battle of Waterloo. The instances of imitative music in Haydn's creation are well known. Coming down to later times, we find the Ophiclide imitating the braying of the ass in Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream overture. And since then, few composers, however reserved in manner and classic in taste, have wholly disdained it. Yet all this long, even distinguished history, does not fully prepare the way for programme music of Berlioz. It is not likely that he was familiar with much of it, and even if he had been, he could have found no programmistic form or idea ready at hand for his programme pieces. The programme music idea was rather in the air than in specific musical works. From the literary romanticist theory of the mixing of the genres and the mingling of the arts, his lively mind no doubt drew a hint. And the influence of his teacher, Lesseur, at the conservatory must be reckoned on. Lesseur was something of a radical and apostle of programme music in his day, 
having been, in fact, relieved of his duties as director of music in Notre Dame, because he insisted upon attuning men's minds to piety by means of picturesque and descriptive performances of the mass. Program music. Here was a true forerunner of Berlioz, a very bad boy in a very solemn church. Perhaps this accounts for Berlioz's veneration of his teacher, one of the few men who doesn't figure somewhat disgracefully in the memoirs. At any rate, the young revolutionist found in Lesseur a sympathetic spirit, such as is rarely to be found in conservatories. To sum up, then, we find that Berlioz had no precedent in reputable music for a sustained work of a close descriptive nature. Works of picturesque quality, which specifically do not depict events, like the Pastoral Symphony, are not program music in the more exact sense. Isolated bits of description in good music, like the famous Leaping Stag and Shaggy Lion of Haydn's creation, offer no analogy for sustained description. And the supposed pieces of sustained description, like the fashionable battle pieces, had and deserved no musical standing. The fantastique, as we shall see, was detailed and sustained description of the first rank musically. The gap between the fantastique and its supposed ancestors was quite complete. It was bridged by pure genius. As for the light motif, it is even more Berlioz's own invention. The use of a particular theme to represent a particular personage or emotion was, of course, in such program music as had existed. But only in a few isolated instances had this been used recurrently to accompany a dramatic story. Mozart in Don Giovanni had used the famous trombone theme to represent the statue, first in the graveyard scene and later in the supper scene. Weber had somewhat loosely used a particular theme to represent the devil Samuel in Der Freischutz. We know from Berlioz's own description how this work affected him in his early Parisian years, and we may assume that the notion of the leitmotif took hold on him then. But the leitmotif in Mozart and Weber is hardly used as a deliberate device, rather only as a natural repetition under similar dramatic conditions. The use of the leitmotif in symphonic music and its variation under varied conditions belongs solely to Berlioz. True to romantic traditions, Berlioz evolved the fantastique out of his own joys and sorrows. It originated in the frenzy of his love for the actress Henriette Smithson. He writes in February 1830, Again, without warning and without reason, my ill-starred passion wakes. She is in London, yet I feel her presence ever with me. I listen to the beating of my heart. It is like a sledgehammer. Every nerve in my body quivers with pain. Woe upon her! Could she but dream of the poetry, the infinite bliss of such love as mine, she would fly into my arms, even though my embrace should be her death. I was just going to begin my great symphony, episode in an artist's life, to depict the course of this infernal love of mine, but I can write nothing. Why, this is very midsummer madness, you say, but the kind of madness from which came much good romantic music, for the work had been planned in the previous year, not long after Miss Smithson had rejected Berlioz's first advances. 
But the composer very soon found that he could write, and he wrote like a fiend. In May he tells a friend that the rehearsals of the symphony will begin in three days. The concert is to take place on the 30th. As for Miss Smithson, I pity and despise her. She is nothing but a commonplace woman, with an instinct for expressing the tortures of the soul that she has never felt. Yet he wished that the theatre people would somehow plot to get her there, that wretched woman. She could not but recognise herself. The performance of the symphony finally came off toward the end of the year, but in the meantime a new goddess had descended from the skies. The composer's marriage was to depend on the success of the concert, so he says. It must be a theatrical success. Camille's parents insist upon that as a condition of our marriage. I hope I shall succeed. P.S. That wretched Smithson girl is still here. I have not seen her. And a few weeks later, I had frantic success. They actually encored the marche au supplice. I am mad, mad. My marriage is fixed for Easter 1832. My blessed symphony has done the deed. But not quite. He was rewriting this same symphony a few months later in Italy, when there came a letter from Camille's mother announcing her engagement to Monsieur Pleyel. As explanation to the symphony, the composer wrote an extended programme in the strictest modern sense. He notes, however, that the programme may be dispensed with, as the symphony, the author hopes, offers sufficient musical interest in itself, independent of any dramatic intention. The programme of the Fantastique is worth quoting entire, since it stands as the prototype and model of all musical programmes since. Quote, A young musician, of morbid sensitiveness and ardent imagination, poisons himself with opium in an excess of amorous despair. The narcotic dose, too weak to cause his death, plunges him into a heavy sleep, accompanied by the strangest visions, while his sensations, sentiments, and memories translate themselves in his sick brain into musical thoughts and images. The loved one herself has become for him a melody, like a fixed idea which he rediscovers and hears everywhere. First part. Reveries, passions. He first recalls that uneasiness of the soul, that wave of passions, those melancholies, those reasonless joys, which he experienced before having seen her whom he loves. Then the volcanic love with which she suddenly inspired him, his frenzied heart-rendings, his jealous fury, his reawakening tenderness, his religious consolations. Second part. A ball. He finds the loved one at a ball, in the midst of tumult and a brilliant fate. Third part. In the country. A summer evening in the country. He hears two shepherds conversing with their horns, this pastoral duet, the natural scene, the soft whispering of the winds in the trees, a few sentiments of hope which he has recently conceived, all combine to give his soul an unwanted calm, to give a happier colour to his thoughts. But she appears anew, his heart stops beating, painful misapprehensions stir him, if she should deceive him. One of the shepherds repeats his naive melody, the other does not respond. The sun sets, 
distant rolls of thunder, solitude, silence. Fourth part. March to the gallows. He dreams that he has killed his loved one, that he is condemned to death, led to the gallows. The cortege advances to the sounds of a march now sombre and wild, now brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy steps follows immediately upon the noisiest shouts. Finally, the fixed idea reappears for an instant like a last thought of love, to be interrupted by the fatal blow. Fifth part. Dream of the Witch's Festival. He fancies he is present at a witch's dance, in the midst of a gruesome company of shades, sorcerers, and monsters of all sorts gathered for his funeral. Strange sounds, sighs, bursts of laughter, distant cries and answers. The loved melody reappears again, but it has lost its character of nobility and timidity. It is nothing but an ignoble dance, trivial and grotesque. It is she who comes to the witch's festival. Sounds of joy at her arrival. She mingles with the hellish orgy, uncanny noises, burlesque of the dies irae, dance of the witches. The witches dance and the dies irae follow. End of quote. The music follows this program in detail and supplies a host of other details to the sympathetic imagination. The opening movement contains a melody, which Berlioz avers he composed at the age of twelve, when he was in love with yet another young lady, a certain Estelle, six years his senior. And in each movement occurs the fixed idea, founder of that distinguished dynasty of leitmotifs in the 19th century. In the opening movement, when the first agonies of love are at their height, this theme undergoes a long contrapuntal development, which is a marvel of complexity and harmonic energy. It recurs practically unchanged in the next three movements, and at its appearance in the fourth, is cut short as the guillotine chops the musician's head off. In the last movement, it undergoes the change which makes this work the predecessor of Liszt's symphonic poems. The structure of this work is complicated in the extreme, and it abounds in harmonic and contrapuntal novelties which are strokes of pure genius. Many a musician may dislike the symphony, but none can help respecting it. The orchestra, though not large for our day, was revolutionary in its time. It included, in one movement or another, besides the usual strings, a small flute and two large ones, oboes, two clarinets, a small clarinet, and an English horn, four horns, two trumpets, two cornets à pistons, and three trombones, four bassoons, two ophiclides, four pairs of kettle drums, cymbals, bells, and bass drum. A challenge to the timid spirits of the time, and a thing of revolutionary significance to modern music. The other great dramatic symphonies of the time belong wholly to Berlioz and Liszt. The revolutionary symphony which Berlioz had planned under the stimulus of the 1830 revolution 
became, about 1837, the Symphonie Funèbre et Héroïque, composed in honour of the men killed in this insurrection. It is mostly of inferior stuff compared with the composer's other works, but the funeral sermon of the second movement, which is a long-accompanied recitative for the trombones, is extremely impressive. Harold in Italy, founded upon Byron's Child Harold, was planned during Berlioz's residence in Italy, and executed under the stimulus of Paganini. Here again we have the fixed idea, in the shape of a lovely solo, representing the morose hero given to the viola. The work was first planned as a viola concerto, but the composer's poetic instinct carried him into a dramatic symphony. First Harold is in the mountains, and Byronic moods of longing creep over him. Then a band of pilgrims approaches, and his melody mingles with their chant. Then the hero hears an Abruzzi mountaineer serenading his lady love, and to the tune of his fixed idea he invites his own soul to muse of love. And finally Harold is captured by brigands, and his melody mingles with their wild dance. Berlioz's melodies are apt to be dry and even cerebral in their character, but this one for Harold is as beautiful as one could wish. Romeo and Juliet is by many considered Berlioz's finest work. It is in two parts, the first including a number of choruses and recitatives narrating the course of the tragedy, and the second developing various pictures selected out of the action. The love scene is pure music of the highest beauty, and the scherzo, based on the Queen Mab speech, is one of Berlioz's most typical inventions. All these compositions antedate by a number of years the works of Liszt and Wagner, which make extended use of Berlioz's means. Wagner describes at length how the idea of leitmotifs occurred to him during his composition of The Flying Dutchman, completed in 1841. But he was certainly familiar with Berlioz's works. Liszt was from the first a great admirer of Berlioz, and greatly helped to extend his reputation through his masterly piano arrangements of the Frenchman's works. His development of the leitmotif in his symphonic poems is frankly an adaptation of the Berlioz idea. Liszt's dramatic symphonies are two, Dante and Faust, by which, doubtless, if he had his way, his name would chiefly be known among the nations. We have seen in an earlier chapter how deeply Liszt was impressed by the great paintings in Rome, and how in his youth he dreamed of some later Beethoven who would translate Dante into an immortal musical work. In the quiet of Weimar, he set himself to accomplish the labour. The work is subtitled Inferno, Purgatory and Paradise, but it is in two movements, the purgatory leading into, or perhaps only to, the gate of heaven. The first movement opens with one of the finest of all Liszt's themes,
designed to express Dante's lines, quote, Through me the entrance to the city of horror, through me the entrance into eternal pain, through me the entrance to the dwelling place of the damned, end quote. And immediately another motive for the horns and trumpets to the famous words, quote, All hope abandon, ye who enter here, end quote. The movement, with an excessive use of the diminished seventh chord, depicts the sufferings of the damned, but presently the composer comes to a different sort of anguish, which challenges all his powers as tone poet. It is the famous episode of Paolo and Francesca da Rimini. It is introduced by another motive of great beauty, standing for the words, quote, There is no greater anguish than, during suffering, to think of happier times. End quote. In the Francesca episode, Liszt lavishes all his best powers and achieves some of his finest pages. The music now descends into the lower depths of the inferno and culminates in a thunderous restatement of the theme, all hope abandon, by the horns, trumpets, and trombones. The second movement, representing purgatory, strikes a very different note, one of hope and aspiration and culminates in the Latin Magnificat, sung by women's voices to a modal tune, which Liszt, now once more a loyal Catholic, writes from the heart. The Faust Symphony, written between 1854 and 1857, is hardly less magnificent in its plan and execution. It is subtitled Three Character Pictures, and its movements are assigned respectively to Faust, Gretchen, and Mephistopheles. Yet the last movement merges into a dramatic narration of the love story and of Faust's philosophic aspirations, and reaches its climax in a men's chorus intoning the famous final chorus from Goethe's drama, quote, All things transitory are but a semblance. End quote. The Faust theme deserves quoting because of its chromatic character, which has become so typical of modern music. <laughs> The whole work is in Liszt's most exalted vein. The character pictures are suggestive in the extreme and are contrasted in the most vivid manner. Liszt has rarely surpassed in sheer beauty the Gretchen episode, the theme of which later becomes the setting for Goethe's famous line, quote, The eternal feminine leads us upward and on. End quote. These two works, the Dante and the Faust, are doubtless not so supremely creative as Liszt imagined but they remain among the noblest things in modern music. Their great difficulty of execution, even to orchestras in our day, stands in the way of their more frequent performance, but to those who hear them they prove unforgettable. In them, more than in any other of his works, Liszt has lavished his musical learning and invention, has put all that was best and noblest in himself. End of section 24